Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Listener note. The following podcast contains descriptions of murder that some listeners may find upsetting. Some scenes have been dramatised. The sheer mystery of it, I think, is what's so perplexing. Why did the person have a cheese wire with him? 10,000 questionnaires done during house-to-house inquiries, four or 5,000 houses visited. There's upwards of 10,000 statements noted, but unfortunately that, that was fruitless. It may just be that this person actually has quite a long record in terms of violence, and through that violence or through his own victimisation, he's developed, developed PTSD as a result there. So we're talking to somebody who's fairly high on psychopathy. It would be someone who should really be known to the police, but certainly not for murder. And those sorts of things will have taught him that actually it's not possible <laughs> to easily kill someone with a cheese wire. In episode one, we heard about the night of Thursday, 29th of September, 1983, when local taxi driver, husband, uncle, and brother George Murdoch picked up a fare on Queen's Road in the West End of Aberdeen. He radioed into his taxi office, telling them that he'd picked up a passenger and was heading out to Cooter, an affluent, leafy suburb nestled between the outskirts of Aberdeen and the edges of Royal Deeside. But for some unknown reason, George pulled into a side street en route to his destination. And that is where his assailant sitting behind him in his taxi, took a cheese wire to his throat. George managed to break free and escape from his blue Ford Cortina taxi, but his passenger overpowered him, strangled him with his hands and left him to die alone. 40 years later, the killer has never been found and never been punished for this brutal and horrific murder. In episode two, we continue our investigation as we ask who is the cheese wire killer? The Cheese Wire Killer, Episode 2, A 40-Year Police Investigation B. 
begins. The morning after George lost his life, Aberdeen woke to the news of his brutal killing. It's worth remembering that this is Aberdeen in 1983, a place and a time where murders rarely occurred, especially involving this kind of brutality. This must have sent shockwaves throughout the city, especially within the local, close-knit community where the murder took place. Ewan Cameron has been a journalist in Aberdeen for 25 years and is now the crime and court editor for regional newspaper, The Press and Journal. The murder happened about five minutes walk from my front door. Even though I was only about seven or eight at the time that it happened, we knew all about it. I probably didn't know the exact detail, the kind of like the gory details of what exactly happened, but I clearly remember me and my friends knew that there was a taxi driver that had been murdered just kind of along the road from where we live. For me, it was one that I'd, you know, I've grown up with the whole time and the sheer mystery of it, I think, is, is what's so perplexing. The, the level of violence and the method in which um, this happened was so unusual. Why did the person have a cheese wire with him? Did he have it because he was planning to do this? And if he was planning to do it, then why would you choose a cheese wire? That area, it's quite an affluent area of the city. It shook things up a little bit because the level of violence involved and the fact that the killer was out was still out there, it really landed on people's doorsteps in a way that they, they would never expect. The uncertainty and the randomness frightened people. From the offset, Grampian police threw every possible resource towards this inquiry to solve this murder as quickly as possible. Here's Detective Inspector James Callender, the current senior investigating officer on the George Murdoch case. Thousands and thousands of hours of, of police work went into that between, you know, the, the time it happened right up until till Christmas there. There was 10,000 questionnaires done during house-to-house -house inquiries, you know, something like four, four or 5,000 houses visited. There's upwards of 10,000 statements noted. Uh, but unfortunately that, that was fruitless, they didn't come up with anything. There was obviously a, a couple of stories of the running man, I think, as, he, as, he, as he's been referred to, somebody who was out running or running eastwards eh, towards the city centre on the evening, whether that person had anything to do with it or not, you know, we don't know. So there wasn't an awful lot came from, from the first night. Eh, it was obviously dark, They've, you know, everything got thrown at it, that's for sure. I mean, the, the amount of officers involved is massive. Uh, I think in the first three months there were something like 65,000, you know, man and woman hours put into the whole inquiry, which is just massive. So there was a lot done. Uh, and that's the basis of what we've got today. You know, that's that's the, what was done back then is what we work from now. The area of Peter Cooter, where George was murdered, was a populated area with a crisscross of leafy streets adorned with large, grand granite houses. George's murder didn't happen overnight in the wee small hours. It happened mid-evening on a Thursday night when many shops remained opened late for Aberdeen's weekly late-night shopping night. Lots of people must have been in the area at the time, returning home from shopping, taking their dog for a walk, out for a jog, going out, or perhaps returning from visiting friends and family. 
Surely, somebody must have seen something. The killer would probably have had bloodstains on his clothes. Would somebody close to him put two and two together and do the right thing by holding this person accountable for their evil actions? Surely, this would be an open and shut case. Jim Singer, a taxi driver, was working on the night of the murder. I remember the night it happened, and then it came over nine-ish that one of the drivers had missing, and they were looking for him. So it was about 10 o'clock, I think, when we when finally got word, not only the 10-ish, that we got word of what had happened to him. So it was devastating, I remember, because you didn't expect that in Aberdeen. When you work the night shift in the 80s, and anything as horrific as this, no, no, nothing like this. It shook us, I think, shook the whole trade. It was just devastating, absolutely devastating. Theories were flying thick and fast at the time. We've heard so many stories. The whole trade itself thought we would, we would, uh, you know, the police would get an early, an early uh, conviction or, you know, apprehend someone for it pretty early on. But I'm just quite, you know, shocked that we couldn't really find out who who committed it. You know, and uh, we expected a, a pretty much a, a result pretty early on. It's been quite. Uh, Quite surprising that we've never had a conviction for it, I must admit. Apart from the two young boys who cycled past when the attack took place, one of the only witnesses that came forward was someone who saw a man running towards the city centre. Running too fast to have thought to have been a jogger, he was described as being between 20 and 30 years old, 5 feet 7 inches, thin, short, dark hair, and clean-shaven. Apart from this possible sighting, the killer murdered George, then disappeared into the night and simply vanished without a trace. Furthermore, possible witnesses who could have helped the police with their inquiries chose not to come forward. Amongst others, a young couple who were driven past any taxi when George picked up his killer that night four teenagers wearing leather jackets waiting at a bus stop, and four or maybe five joggers who were also seen in the vicinity around the time of the murder. Sixteen possible witnesses who became known as the Silent Sixteen. Detective Inspector James Callender. I'll never understand why people don't come forward and I've been doing this job a long time, but, you know, out of fear, I guess, protecting somebody potentially. And I've no doubt that has happened because somebody knows something. There's, there's no doubt about that. But yeah, just fear, I think. Not wanting to get involved. The day after the murder, Grampian Police's manhunt went into overdrive, led by then Detective Superintendent Jim McLeod. At first light, a large team of police officers, along with 30 police dog handlers, started to comb the area looking for vital clues. Okay, everyone, settle down. Listen up, please. Thank you. Okay, you all know what you're supposed to be doing. For the officers doing door-to-door inquiries, you have the questions you need to ask. And for the group doing the search of the area, I want a methodical search, please. If you find anything at all, shout, raise your hand. Last thing we want to do is miss anything. Now, I know emotions are high. We all want to catch this monster. So, let's do our very best today for the deceased. Okay? Okay, everyone. 
Off you go. The two boys who witnessed the murder were interviewed for several hours with their parents by their side. As the only key witnesses to this fatal attack, a description or anything at all that they remembered about George's attacker could have had a huge bearing on the police investigation. All hopes for the police hung on these two 15-year-old boys. However, although the attack took place under streetlight, they were too traumatised by what they saw to remember any information that could have helped the police. In the initial hours of the investigation, George's blood had barely even dried on the ground, next to the chalk silhouette that was drawn around his body the night before. And then, of course, there was his wife, Jessie. Surrounded by her close friends and family, privately grieving for the loss of her beloved husband. On the 5th of October, six days after the murder, George's brother James, standing next to Jessie, looking bewildered and grief-stricken, gave a statement to the waiting journalists. How are you, Mrs Murdoch? What was your husband like? What do you want to say to the murderer? Okay, okay. I'm George's brother, James Murdoch. I'll say a few words, but we won't be taking any questions. Then we'd ask, can you leave our family in peace to grieve? Please. The longer the killer remains on the loose, the colder the trail gets. Quicker he's found, the better, because somebody else's life may be at risk. Could be a young child next. You never know. I feel somebody must know something, and I would ask them to come forward immediately. Thank you. In the first few weeks of the investigation, the police inquiry found nothing. Speaking to George's family, friends and work colleagues also gave the police no possible leads. There wasn't anything in George's background that even suggested that somebody would have wanted to kill him. He and Jesse were just a normal, quiet couple who lived a simple and happy life. The police thought George should have had about £21 in his taxi, equal to about £80 in today's money. But this, along with his brown leather wallet, was nowhere to be seen. Was this a robbery that had gone wrong, or was it something more sinister? For 24 years, Helen Hart has been a chartered forensic psychologist, working with maximum security prisoners, many of them murderers. And she also works closely with the English court system. Helen is also an honorary lecturer at the University of Salford. Helen believes that one possibility is that George could have provoked the passenger through no fault of his own. Many, many murderers have PTSD from various different historic events, but PTSD can also develop from the murder as well. There's no indication that this person has committed murder before, but he may have done. Yes, he might not have used a cheese wire before, but he may have used another form of weapon. Or it may just be that this person 
actually has quite a long record in terms of violence and through that violence or through his own victimization he's developed developed PTSD as a result there and what we know about people with PTSD is yes they can be violent and they can be triggered for violence the attack was unprovoked well we don't know it was unprovoked because it's likely that that George could have said something completely innocently not knowing but that that provoked the attack. Quite possible that that happened. So often when I'm speaking to people who've committed murders or very, very serious assaults, they'll tell me something very, very seemingly innocuous that somebody had said to them or a victim had said to them. And myself or anybody else listening would think, why would that trigger that sort of response? Because to us, it shouldn't trigger that response and it wouldn't trigger that response. But at that time and with those conditions and for that offender, it absolutely did. So it is very possible that that person had PTSD. Dr David Holmes is a criminal psychologist. For 25 years, he has been part of government think tanks, examining serious crimes. And before retiring, he was a lecturer at Manchester Metropolitan University. We do know quite categorically that this is a fairly callous person who is capable of killing, even it may not be necessarily that he knew that he did kill uh, George. Um, but in fact, he would be somebody who would be capable of killing someone who's somebody who's violent, somebody who's fairly callous, has very little conscience, um, probably has very little fear of others. Um, so we're talking to somebody who's fairly high on psychopathy and someone who would go to the nth degree um, either for an argument we know nothing about or um, for a simple theft and quite um, low level theft, theft as well. It's someone who is um, callous, someone who is fairly young, um, someone who would be um, have a record, I think, of theft, uh, minor violence accompanying theft, um, possibly muggings, etc. Um, it would be someone who should really be known to the police, but certainly not for murder. So, just for a minute, let's take a step back. The police and the psychologists who I've interviewed believe that this could have been a robbery gone wrong or a result of the killer suffering from a mental health condition such as post-traumatic stress disorder. If this was a robbery that had gone terribly wrong, could the person already have been known to the police? Detective Inspector James Callender. It's not going to have been his first robbery, I don't think. You know, you wouldn't go straight from nothing to a, a robbery as, as uh, brutal as that. You would, you know, maybe do a bit of shoplifting and work your way up to, to a crime of that nature. So I, I think the person will be known to the police uh, if indeed they've been caught in the past, that's for sure. It just seems so unbelievable that someone could have taken George's life as part of a robbery and for only £21. Every time I think about George being murdered as the result of a robbery, it just doesn't make sense to me because of what George's nephew Alex told me in episode one. My Uncle Dog wasn't a fighter. If this was a robbery that had gone wrong, he would have, if the guy said, give me your money, he would have said, there you go. And that's the saddest thing of all. Robina Mackay, Alex's wife, also shares the same opinion. For a long time, I thought it was just a, if you, for want of a better word, a straightforward robbery. Um, 
perhaps the guy didn't mean it to end like that. He could have said, well, you know, give me the money, and, and Dolly would have willingly given it to him. I mean, there is no question about that. That's 100% guaranteed, and I know we weren't there, but I know that's exactly what he would have done. But for me, I just, that doesn't hold right with me anymore, because the end result was too extreme. I'm not exactly sure why they ended up or how they ended up outside on the, on the pavement. There was a lot of blood splatter on the, on the wall, the, the high wall outside that house. Now the only way that could have occurred was um, by, by the killer um, either knocking George's head against the, the wall. That, that's the only way, possible way that, that could have happened. So he did that, which would have been enough to probably render um, Dodd maybe not quite unconscious then, but certainly he would have been well on his way to being unconscious. So why then does he still hang around this guy? They're down in the, in the ground, he gets down, down in the ground, and he then decides to manually strangle him. For me, that does speak that, that it has to be somebody who has psychopathic tendencies. He could have just reached in, got the, the wallet, which he did eventually, the money, whatever money there was, and, and made off. It was a dark, dark night. There's no way Dodd would have been able to identify the guy, and he would have known that. Maybe he was in the army or, or the armed forces in some way, um, and I, I know that they did use um, uh, garrots there. Maybe not now, but they certainly did a long time ago because I, I researched this, and, and that was used in the Brit by the British. Um, so maybe the guy has been trained in this, uh, and you know, and, and maybe maybe he he just has that kind of mentality. I mean, why else would you have had a why why would you go out with a cheese wire in your pocket? Um, it isn't something that you would use for self-protection. You're going to use it to kill, not not just maim, kill somebody. So I do think personally that, that he may have psychopathic tendencies. David, George's neighbour, was like a grandson to George and Jesse. And we'll be hearing a lot more from him in episode three. But what does he think happened to George that night? Well, it's somebody that's... It's a... A robbery that's gone too far. Um, but why did it end that way? Because Dodd would have been the first person to hand his wallet over. And he'd said that when, when numerous times when Jesse was part, worried about him doing it, when he started talking, she's like, what if this happens? What if he went, just hand the money over? And she says, there's no point, in, no point in fighting, getting involved. You just hand it over, it's not worth it. So I know that it wasn't a robbery that's gone wrong in my head. You think that's what it is, but no, it's... Somebody's gone out knowing what they were going to do. I really do think that, because who goes out with a cheeseburger in their pocket? From what the experts and the police have told me, I can't help wondering if this was something else other than a robbery gone tragically wrong. George's nephew and his wife, his neighbour David, who was like a grandson to George, they all categorically agree that George would not have fought back. He would have simply handed his money over. And anyway, whether this was a robbery or an unprovoked attack, why did this incident spill out onto the side of the road and lead to George's death? The murderer didn't succeed in killing George with the cheese wire in the taxi. So why, when they both exited the vehicle, did his passenger continue the attack and kill George? He could still have just disappeared into the night, never to be seen again. But the crucial difference to this outcome 
would have been that George would have lived and been able to live out the rest of his life with his wife Jessie. Chartered forensic psychologist Helen Hart shares her theory on why the killer didn't afford George this opportunity. If somebody knew that their life was in danger, which he would have done, you know, he's had something sharp around his neck, he would know that that person was trying to kill him. So it's quite probable that George was fighting for his life. So in order to kind of think about what does that look like? How is he doing that? It's quite relevant that he would probably be going hell for leather, really, in terms of everything that he's doing to try and escape. That will kind of elicit different responses in the perpetrator. Definitely anger, definitely fear. um, But the balance of those, again, would depend very much on whether the person was uh, mentally unwell whether it was a, a psychopath, for example, because um, we know that their um, amygdalas don't process um, fear in the same way that a non-psychopath's brain does. So, you, you know, that it wouldn't necessarily be fearful when he was carrying out that attack. But certainly anger seems to be like a really relevant emotion. So I'm wondering whether or not the offender thought, actually, how dare this person, you know, how dare the taxi driver be escaping from me? How, how dare he um, be challenging me back through fighting? So it does suggest that he had an expectation that he was or should have been able to overwhelm him. That makes me wonder if he'd seen it in a film. So it might have been that the offender watched something and saw that happening. And if it was, you know, as you can imagine in films, it could have been seen as a very easy way to overpower someone. It might be that the person had already done that practicing with animals. That's something that's not unusual. It might be that, you know, if somebody is planning murders and hopes to one day kind of progress to murdering other humans, that they may have practiced that technique with animals and thought, oh, right, now the next part is to kind of progress on to doing it with a a human. It does make me think that the offender was really clear that, yes, in using this technique, I'm going to be successful. So we know that George wasn't a fighter. We also know that the killer took the attack to the absolute extreme. And then... There's the weapon, which has resulted for the past 40 years in the assailant being labelled as the cheese wire killer. A cheese wire really, to my mind, is somebody that's attacking somebody. That's not self-defence. You are there with something specifically in your mind that if, to use it for something. It's not good, obviously, because you're going to be taking someone from the back, uh, wrapping it around their throat, and, 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 and basically it's a garrote, and you're using it as a, as a garrote. So... Uh, yeah, special type of person that would, would do something like that. Someone with, with uh, anger management issues. Um, I don't, that's a, a, a question I don't even know if I could even hazard a guess at how somebody's mind could go like that. I just That's unfathomable to me that somebody would, would get to that kind of pitch where they, they want to do something like that. For money? Is it for money? Is it for gratification? I don't know. Just kind of real bewildering. Brian Rutherford is a local reporter who in recent years has followed and covered this investigation. We'll be hearing more from him in episode four. But Brian has actually had experience of handling a cheese wire. When I was much younger, I worked on a cheese counter. I've used a cheese wire many times. They are incredibly strong and, you know, to a degree, quite dangerous if you're not using them properly. To think that someone could turn a cheese wire into a garrote and take someone's life, it's a horrific thought, but it really bothers me. You know, having actually held a cheese wire and used it 
it's really hard to forget that particular detail in this case. It is a case involving probably the most unusual murder weapon I've ever heard about. We have a man who so innocently was, you know, in the front of his car, driving it, and for this to happen out of the blue, the sustained, really violent, brutal attack, it's really hard to accept that with everything that he went through and with everything we know now, it's still unsolved. And the fact that George's wife, Jessie, died without any answers, I think that's really troubling. A knife, a blunt instrument, even a gun. I could understand why someone would use one of these weapons. But a cheese wire? Could this weapon of choice possibly tell us something tangible about the killer? Dr. David Holmes. It tells you that this is a guy who either wanders around with a cheese wire, which would be a lesser noticed weapon, uh, as opposed to a knife. So it's one of those things, you, you don't know whether he actually took the cheese wire deliberately for this purpose of attacking a taxi driver from behind, or whether this happened to be something that he carried around with him and it actually facilitated his ability to commit robberies uh, and minor offences uh, involving theft. Someone who doesn't mind getting close and personal to someone when they're actually attacking them or defending themselves, but it could be a very specific premeditated situation. I am assuming that uh, it would be traditional in these particular taxis for the passengers to sit in the rear and the drivers be obviously in the front. And this would be possibly one of the few opportunities where a cheese wire could be used to subdue, threaten, or even obviously kill someone because you had access from behind and the other person would have very little chance of defending themselves. If in fact, as we might be um, led to believe by the fact that they both rolled out onto the pavement, would probably uh, have led to him, as he did, killing George, subduing George uh, by strangulation and bashing his head on the pavement. Another question that also bothers me is why did the murderer not commit a crime again with his unusual choice of weapon. Since George's death in 1983, there has been no murders with the same MO. Chartered forensic psychologist Helen Hart. It wasn't successful for him, was it? You know, it's it's absolutely not been a successful outcome. So the offender had, for whatever reason, chosen to try and murder someone with a cheese wire. And the way that he would have played that out in his mind would have been a very clean um, murder that it would have been exactly like he'd seen on TV or in a film or how he's imagined that in his head. Now, when that didn't happen, that's led to a specific response from the offender, which, yes, will likely be panic, um, fear, anger, all of those sorts of things, but also physical injury. And those sorts of things will have taught him that actually it's not possible (laughs) to easily kill someone with a cheese wire and I shouldn't try it again and I'm not going to try it again. That would absolutely make sense in terms of why that hadn't continued as another um, cheese wire murder. Whether or not that person moved areas or went somewhere else or tried to kill someone again using a different weapon choice, we don't know. But yeah, in terms of not using a cheese wire again, you can absolutely understand why he wouldn't do that because it wasn't as easy as he thought it would be. In the first few weeks of the investigation, the police carried out 10,000 house-to-house calls which resulted in 8,000 witness statements being taken from members of the public. 
Just listen to that number once again. 8,000 witness statements. Surely somebody from this pool of 8,000 people must have heard or seen something, or maybe even suspected someone who lived locally. The sheer volume of witness statements meant that Grampian Police Force brought in new technology to help solve this case. For the first time ever, the force brought in a computer to catalogue all of the witness statements. It may sound funny to hear this, but again, this was 1983, and up until this case, Grampian Police had always relied on a manual card record system. Detective Inspector James Callender. Because the inquiry was so big, it helped manage it. That's for sure. Uh, you know, policing in 1983 isn't like policing in 2023. You know, our computer systems are are far greater and better now than they were in 1983. But yeah, they got a computer uh, from a neighbouring force, and they used that for for typing on statements and and linking uh, statements to to individuals, and uh, just made it easier to manage. You know, rather than have to, I mean, there, there was about 10,000 statements noted. A lot easier to manage that on a computer than it is in a, you know, a paper format. However, despite the extraordinary number of statements the police painstakingly collected and input into their computer, this led to no further developments in the hunt for George's killer. Police also focused on the bars and the restaurants in the vicinity of where George picked up his killer. And one barmaid working at the hotel bar of the new Markcliffe, right next to the pavement from where George had picked up his passenger, did remember something of interest. Murder squad officers spent several hours interviewing the barmaid, whose identity was never disclosed. She told the police that at about 8pm that night, 35 minutes before George picked up his passenger, she had to ask someone to leave the bar, because she thought this individual was too drunk to be served more alcohol. Another beer, please? I said another beer, darling. I heard you the first time, darling, but I think you've had enough. You what? I didn't want any trouble, so you either go or I'll have to get my manager. Okay, okay. I'm going, I'm going. The barmaid gave a description, similar to the one given by the witness who saw the man running towards the city centre, this so-called running man. She told the police that he was scruffily dressed, wearing jeans and had a local accent. The hotel manager, Gerald Cameron, told the press at the time that this man walked out without causing problems. He was very drunk, but he just left. Does Detective Inspector James Callender believe that this person could have been George's killer. The description was quite generic, to be honest. So, you know, short, dark hair. Uh, was he about five foot seven, five foot eight? I think it was it was described by by some witnesses. I, the two boys. Uh, it could have been, but you know, Aberdeen on a Thursday night would have been quite busy. It's you know, what would there have been? 150, 200,000 population in Aberdeen at that time. It's, uh, difficult to see. Although the police interviewed the bar customers, the bar staff and the hotel guests, unfortunately this lead also didn't help the case to move forward. 
So, what now? Well, on the 18th of October, almost three weeks after the murder, the police finally got the break they'd been desperately waiting for. An assistant at a local fish and chip shop, about a mile from the murder scene, came forward and told the police that about 15 minutes after the time of the murder, a man came into the shop with several scratches to his face, a bruised eye and a cut hand, and ordered some food to take away. Could this person have been the killer? Were the scratches on his face and his bruised eye caused by George desperately trying to defend himself? And his cut hand, were they caused by the cheese wire as George fought for his life? But because the witness waited for almost three weeks before coming forward, was this key information simply too little, too late? Coming up in episode three of Who is the Cheesewire Killer? The search at Pataudry was based on information that came in almost three weeks after the, the murder. I can't imagine that somebody who wasn't psychopathic would be able to do that because I would imagine somebody who wasn't would have been extremely fearful of being apprehended. Jessie was never the same after that. Passed away herself of a broken heart. We lived in some fear thereafter, and understandably so. I can't think of anything uh, high enough to say about David and doing something like that. God bless him. Really, God bless him. His wife being fearful is a very rational response for her. So yeah, she probably developed PTSD, quite likely, um, was traumatised. That's a really sad way for her to end the rest of her life. If you have any information about what may have happened to George Murdoch on the night of 29th September 1983, please do get in touch. A £50,000 reward remains for any information that successfully leads to the identity of the killer. You can private message the George Murdoch Facebook page. Search for Appeal for Information Aberdeen Taxi Driver 1983 George Murdoch on Facebook. You can email jdhallfield at mail.co.uk or you can call Police Scotland on 101, all of which you can do anonymously. Also, please rate, share, and tell people about this podcast. The more people who hear this story, the better chance we have of finally bringing George Murdoch's killer to justice. You've been listening to Who is the Cheesewire Killer? Written, produced, edited and presented by me, Ryan Ogilvie. Mixed by Christopher MacDonald. Dramatic scenes were produced by Leanne Colston, Rory O'Shea and Steve Henderson. Actors included Angela Duguid, Ben Barclay, Daniel Warren, Guillaume Potter, Jenny Dunbar, Kenny Blythe, Kenny Luke, Martin Barclay-Bell, Oliver Johnston and Steve Henderson. Music from New Noise Audio and Soundstripe. Studio facilities were provided by Original 106. This is a Mind the Gap creative production.
Hello, I'm Violet Manners, and welcome to Hidden Heritage, the podcast that brings you inside Great Britain's favourite destinations. From the same team that brought you the number one history podcast, Duchess, Hidden Heritage will uncover the fascinating stories behind the UK's brightest shining hidden gems. You'll hear from top experts in British heritage, including custodians, historians, artisans, experts, and even the craftsmen and restorers who've worked on some of the most celebrated historic buildings. We will share the untold and unique stories that celebrate UK heritage, from landmarks to architecture, artifacts to myths and legends. Hidden Heritage will highlight a side to British history you have never seen before. I'm your host, Violet Manners and founder of Heritage X. And I invite you all to join us on this exciting journey. This is Hidden Heritage. You can find Hidden Heritage wherever you listen to your podcasts.